Good morning. I hope the 4th of July didn't take its toll on too many of us that ate too much pig yesterday. Maybe God will forgive me for just one week of indulgence, one time thing. In our family, we uh, kind of have a reunion each year on the 4th of July, the Hall and Henry family. Kind of celebrate my grandparents' uh, gener generations. And it's become a custom, of course, that we uh, uh, eat barbecue. And uh, we uh, <laughs> sacrifice two pigs that go in the pit and it gets cooked all night long. And we put the sauce on it and everybody comes around and have like 130-something people there yesterday. Am I coming in too hard? Drop this down just a little bit. I apologize. Uh, when I told John last week I didn't mind substitute for him, I didn't know I was going to come down with a cold. And so if my voice gives out before the end of the lesson here this morning, uh, we'll have more fellowship time between there and uh, church service. Do appreciate everybody's presence here today. Do we have any special prayer request? I was going to say, told John, I said, John, I'm going to try to catch up for you. He looked at me kind of funny. I said, John, I'm a retired engineer and you're a lawyer. Engineers talk a little bit, but lawyers talk a whole lot more. So maybe I can get you caught up here, but I don't know whether I can or not. We were in lesson three to finish it off, I think, about the last uh, several parts of it. And Bill has some handout for lesson four. Hopefully we'll get into lesson four today. Uh, we're into the, the lesson three, which was entitled, uh, How to Handle Temptation. If you need one, just raise your hand. Bill will be glad to give you one. This lesson is eerie similar to our study from last uh, quarter, which was love more and sin less, I believe. We'll make mention of that later on. Let's begin our class with a word of prayer, please, though, first. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the day you've blessed us with. We're thankful for the sunshine. We're thankful for the rain. We're thankful that you've blessed us that we can come study your word to apply it to lives to be better servants to your kingdom day by day. We pray for those that may be sick among us and sick that we know, those that may be hurting in various ways. You'd restore them to a portion of the hell. We pray for all those that may be traveling, uh, especially those of our number and those of our family during this holiday weekend. Pray they be kept safe. I ask you now to help us to meditate upon your word and grow in the love of your word, love one toward each other day by day. And forgive us when we fail. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Part two of uh, the lesson was considering God's goodness. And when we look at the title of, of this, it said one of the enemy's tricks is to convince us that our father is withholding holding out on us, that he doesn't really love us, that he doesn't even care for us. And when Satan approached Eve, you remember, he asked her, you know, what can you do here? He said, well, we eat of everything except that fruit over there. Of course, what was Satan's in route. Oh, well, God's really holding back. You, you're going to be smart as God if you do this. 
And so he convinced Eve that he had something better to give than God did. Uh, when Satan tempted Jesus, he said, uh, perhaps raise the question to him, uh, if you're hungry, if your father loves you, why don't you, know, why don't you, uh, won't you make these stones into bread? Of course, Christ answered, you shall not eat, live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. Uh, the goodness of God is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. Since God is good, we do not need any other person, including Satan, to meet our needs. It's better to be hungry in the will of God than full outside the will of God. Once we start to doubt God's goodness, we will be attracted to Satan's uh, offers. And the natural desires within us uh, reach out for his bait. You know, Moses warned Israel not to forget God's goodness when they begin to enjoy the blessings of, of, of the promised land in Deuteronomy 6. That there'd be this land flowing with milk and honey that they'd be given. And, uh, you know, when you said, you know, if you don't look out, you'll sit down, you'll eat. You'll think, oh, look what I've done. And you forget about God. Said you'll inherit houses you did not build and vineyards you did not dress. And, you know, don't forget these things. What did the children of Israel do? They forgot. And the cycle kept going over and over. James presents four facts uh, about the goodness of God. And uh, in our outline here, we have these kind of listed. Uh, one is God gives only good gifts. Uh, everything good comes from God. It did not come God. If it did not come from God, it's not really good. If it comes from God, it must be good, even if we do not see the goodness of it immediately. Uh, the example given was Paul's thorn in the flesh. Uh, you know, he beseeched God, what, thrice to remove it from him. God said, my grace is sufficient for me. And Paul says, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll use it as a blessing. Many times we don't understand why things happen. Uh, why sometimes bad things happen to good people. But I'm always of the opinion that whenever, and of course, had a friend of mine pass away this past week and buried a Friday, Alan Boyd, that it teaches us that we should always number our days. We don't know. If there's something good about something like that, you can say, well, I can't see any good, but I can see this one thing. It should make us all realize that we're just a breath away from eternity. And should live our, our lives accordingly. Did I say maternity? I meant eternity, excuse me. Uh, the second thing it brings about is that the way God gives it is good. We can translate the second clause into every act of giving. It's possible for someone to give us a gift in a manner that's begudgingly or of necessity, so to speak. And certainly it's not well received when we do that. But, you know, when God gives, us, gives to us, it's a blessing. It's a blessing from God. He always does it in a loving, gracious manner. What he gives and how he gives are both good. And many times, of course, God is referred to uh, as us to, as his children. And how do we as parents do in our children? We give them good things. We don't give them bad things. Uh, we, we love our children. We, we try to help them out. And this is one of the things we must consider also. The third thing he talks about is he gives continuously. Coming down, of course, as, as a as a present participle it keeps on coming uh, God does not give occasionally he gives constantly 
when we look at it, uh, even though you may not see the gifts, he's always sending them. You know, I take a breath of air. Where'd they come from? It came from God. Everything we do comes from God. Our bodies were formed. Uh, the water we drink, food, our five senses, all these things are things that God has blessed us with. Uh, of course, how we know this, God tells us so, that every gift comes from him. The fourth thing it brings out here is God does not change. Uh, there's no shadow with the Father of lights. It's impossible for God to change. He cannot change for the worse because he is holy. He cannot change for the better because he's already perfect. Uh, you know, the light of the sun goes around and throws shadows on the earth. And we have eclipses at times when the moon comes between the uh, earth and the, the sun. But the sun is still always there. It's still always shining. He's unchanging God. Uh, that means we should never question his love or doubt his goodness when difficulties come or temptations appear. And, of course, those times will come. The example, of course, uh, that he has given in the lesson was about King David remembering the, the goodness of the Lord. He wouldn't have taken Bathsheba and committed those terrible sins that he did. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, uh, David did those things. And, uh, you know, he committed those sins. Here again, he was in the wrong place, maybe at the wrong time. But then it said, I remember as you begin to read about that in Second uh, Samuel, there was a time when the kings went out for war, but David wasn't going out with the troops. He was there back at the castle and uh, evidently walking around at sunset. So maybe David should have been with the troops as, as the commander-in-chief, we would say, as the king. But he wasn't. And this terrible thing happened. Of course, you know, when the Nathan the prophet came to David and, uh, and told him about this, he said, Thus said the Lord God of Israel, I appointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul many times, by the way. Uh, I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wife into thy bosom. And I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. If it had been too little, I more would have given unto thee much and such things. In other words, Nathan was reminded that God had given David all these things. And if he wanted some more, he would have done it. But he had to be obedient to God. Note the repetition of the word give in the brief statement. God had been good to David, yet God, David forgot God's goodness and took the bait of Satan. Took that, that process of sin. You know, we see tragedy that, that, that can happen right there. The second, first barrier against temptation, of course, is a negative one. The fear of judgment and, and the judgment of God. Uh, the second barrier is a positive one, the goodness of God. And, you know, I, as I alluded to earlier, and when we talk about the previous quarter's lesson about uh, love more and sin less, if we appreciate God's love, it will cause less sin in our life. The fear of God is a healthy attitude, we, but the love of God must balance it. We must obey him because he may chasten us, or we can obey him because he has already been so generous to us, and because we love him for it. You know, it was a positive attitude that kept Joseph from sinning when he was tempted by his master's wife, by Potiphar's wife. Remember that story in Genesis uh, 39, when uh, Joseph was uh, tempted by Potiphar's wife to uh, have an affair with. 
And Joseph answered her in, in Genesis 39, 7, said, Behold, with me around, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and has withheld any, nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? Now, it would have been sin against Potiphar, but, but David, I mean, Joseph was looking at the big picture right there. It was actually sin against God. And so, uh, here again, that attitude of uh, God's going to uh, uh, deliver me, or, or I can't do this against God because God's been so good to me. Uh, Joseph knew these blessings came from God, and it was the goodness of God through the hands of his employer that restrained him in the hour of temptation. And I'm sure if you, the story just kind of stopped pretty close to there, you'd wonder, well, you know, that was great for him to do that. But then what happened? Uh, Potiphar came home. His wife made up a big lie about Joseph. And Joseph gets thrown in jail. Now, I'm sure the rest of us would be thinking in Joseph's place, now, why, why did God let this happen to me? You know, I was doing right. I was obeying God, and now I'm locked up in jail. But, you know, we as humans can only see how far in front of us, about like that. You know, God saw the overall picture. What happened to Joseph in jail? He became the head of the jail, didn't he? More or less put in charge. And, of course, it was while he was in jail that he met the butler and the uh, baker uh, of uh, Pharaoh, interpreted their dreams, and through that interpretation, uh, basically became second in command of Egypt. So Joseph was faithful to God, even though there were ups and downs in his life. But him becoming second in command of Egypt was basically the salvation of, of the people, of, of the people that God had chosen to be his uh, uh, the lineage of Christ because of the famine that was severe that was going to come around later on when the years of plenty came and then the years of famine uh, Joseph was able to bring his father and brethren back there and uh, they lived in the land of Egypt for 400 years God's gift he talks about have always been better than Satan's bargains Satan never gives any gifts because you uh, end up paying for them dearly. Uh, if it is a blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and He adds no sorrow to it. Uh, Proverbs twenty, I mean ten twenty two. Uh, also, we we've heard the expression uh, before, of course, the Bible of sowing and reaping. When you sow with the devil, you will reap multiple problems. Uh, you know this this happens. Daily, I'm sure we will read in the paper tomorrow about how many people were killed over this holiday weekend because of alcohol abuse. Drunk driving, you know, runs into some innocent family on the road. Lost a good friend of mine years and years ago. I think about on the 4th of July, they were coming back from a fireworks display. I went to school with, uh, back to... His name was Glenn Daniel. His dad was a coach at Luverne for years and years, one of the most uh, celebrated high school coaches around. But 
some drunk ran head on to him and his family, killed him and one of his sons. Uh, so, you know, the, the results of bargaining with the devil. I'm sure that person that was drunk, that when they get it, wasn't thinking about all the consequences that could have happened to them or could happen to other innocent people there, but it did. He talks about Achan and Joshua was seven, got the warning of God and, and the goodness of God when he saw the forbidden wealth, covered it and took it. He became rich, but the sorrow that followed turned his riches into poverty. Remember the story? they just conquered Jericho. The walls had fallen down. And what had God told them to do about the stuff that was in Jericho? Don't touch it. Leave it alone. Well, what did Achan see in there? Was it a wedge of gold, wedge of silver, and some real good threads, man. Look at those, those, those good, good Babylonian things. So Achan took those things, hid them. And you think, well, it's no big deal. He just took a few things, but he disobeyed God. God had told him to do these things. What happened then to when the children of Israel went up against Ai a few a little short time later after that? Remember, uh, they said, look, Joshua, Ai is just a small city. We don't need to spend it. Long. Don't send the whole congregation up there to fight. We can do it ourselves, you know. So they went up to Ai to put a whooping on them and kill them, kill them off. And the people of Ai rose up and, and they turned their backs on them. Thirty-five men were killed because of the sin of Achan. Thirty-five, we'd say, innocent people died because of that man's sin. Of course, they came back, and Joshua fell on his face and said, you know, Lord, why have you done all this? And God said, there's sin in the camp. Purge, purge that sin out. And, of course, they did, but and what did, it, what did it cost Achan? He was rich for a little bit, but if I remember service correctly, he was stoned, and his family and his belongings were stoned. So here again, forgetting about the love of God and sinning against God has its terrible consequences. The next time you're tempted, meditate on the goodness of God in your life. If you think you need something, wait on the Lord to provide it. Never uh, toy with the devil's bait. One purpose of temptation is to teach us patience. David was tempted twice to kill King Saul and hasten his own coronation, but he restrained the temptation and waited for God's time. You know, a lot of times we think we need something. I know growing up, I thought I needed a motorcycle. My dad said, no, I didn't need a motorcycle. Now, later on, I owned two or three, but I was more mature then, but a friend of mine owned one, and one of them little Honda 50s, and he'd come over, and we'd go down to the ditch behind my house and catch turtles and do other kind of fun things that young teenage guys do. But about a year after he had the motorcycle, he said, well, I guess my time's up. And I said, James, what do you mean by that? He said, well, the average person that owns a motorcycle has a major wreck within one year when they own one. And we laughed about it. One week later, some lady cuts between two cars and he's on the other side, catches him broadside. Fortunately, he was not killed. Broke his leg, tore up his motorcycle. His little nephew on the back was knocked off and landed on the sidewalk, but was basically unscathed. But, you know, here's one of those things. 
after that, I realized maybe I didn't need a motorcycle right then. Uh, in the case of David, you know, twice he had a chance to kill King Saul. And you would think, well, you know, you know, David, here's your chance. But what would David say? He said, I will not raise my hand up against God's anointed. And we think about it, but we look back, this was already after the time that Samuel had anointed David and said, you will be the next king. It's not like you're going to have to overthrow somebody. It's David, you're going to be the next king. And these opportunities presented to uh, David uh, once in a cave and then once out in the open where he walked up and took Saul's spear and something else from him, again, what it was, he could have taken him off. But he said, no, I will not raise my hand up against God's anointed. You know, he remember he did remember the goodness of God there. The next phase they look at there is considering God's divine nature within us. Uh, excuse me. In the first barrier, uh, God says, look ahead and beware of judgment. In the second barrier, he says, look around and see how good I've been to you. We've talked about that. In the third barrier, he says, look within and realize that you have been born from above and possess the divine nature of God. Uh, Jesus used birth as a picture of desire leading to sin and death. He also, in first, uh, James did in first one one fifteen. also used to explain we can enjoy victory over temptation and sin. The Apostle John used a similar approach to 1 John 3, 9, where the seed refers to the divine life and nature within the believer. He said, note the characteristics uh, of the birth. One, it is divine birth. Uh, Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus, thought he had to be uh, born again and reenter his mother's womb. He made that comment. How can this be done? Um, the birth is not of the flesh, it is from above. John 3, 1 through 7. Is the work of God, just as we not generate our own human birth, we cannot generate our own spiritual birth uh, until, we be, uh, um, until we become obedient to the word of God. We put our faith and obedience in Christ Jesus. It was God who performs that blessing. Number two, it is gracious. Uh, we did not earn it or deserve it. Gave a, God gave a spiritual birth because of his own grace and will, where, which you were born not of blood or human sin, nor the will of the flesh, human efforts, nor the will of man, human assistance, but of God, 1 John 1, 13. God has been gracious to us. We're human beings. We're fallible. We make many mistakes. But his love is always out there. Uh, no one can be born again because his relatives or his resolutions uh, the new birth is the work of God through our obedience to that, that word. And it's through God's word. Just as a human birth requires two parents, so divine birth has two parents, the word of God and the spirit of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Uh, John 3, 6. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. First Peter 1, 23. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about the miracle of the new birth. Or, since the Word of God is living and powerful, and, than any two and active and more than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. We can generate life in the heart of the sinner who obeys Christ, and that life becomes God's life. 
He then talks about on the fourth thing, it is the finest birth possible. We're kind of first fruits of his creation, of his creatures. James wrote to Jewish believers that the word first fruits would be meaningful to them. Of course, the Old Testament talks about bringing the first fruits uh, of the field to for sacrifice to God. Uh, this is uh, honor the Lord with that a substance and with the first fruit of thine increase, Proverbs 3 9. This is what the, under the Old Testament, this is what the Jews were supposed to do. The first fruits that were brought in, first part of the harvest was, was to be sacrificed to God, along with bunches of other sacrifices, of course. Of all God's creatures, God is in the universe. Christians are the very highest and the finest. We share God's nature. For this reason, it is beneath our dignity to accept Satan's bait or desire sinful things. A higher birth must mean a higher life. Of course, now, we may see things and be tempted, but because we're tempted doesn't mean we have to accept that bait. We have to look beyond the temptation and see what is the result of this going to be? How is this going to hurt me? How is this going to hurt the people around me? And more importantly, how is this going to hurt God? You know, don't you know God's heart was broken when David sinned with Bathsheba? You look back and look at all the Psalms that David wrote, praising to God, thankfulness to God, and then in that moment just totally messing up. Yet God did forgive him. Uh, By granting us a new birth, God declares that he cannot accept the old birth. Throughout the Bible, God rejects the firstborn and accepts the secondborn. He accepted Abel and not Cain's sacrifice, Isaac and not Ishmael, uh, Jacob and not Esau. He rejects your first birth, no matter how noble it might have been in the eyes of men, and announces that you need a second birth, of course, the birth into the spiritual realm of God. It is this experience of the new birth that helps us overcome temptation. If we let the old nature from a first birth take over, we will fail. We receive our old nature, the flesh from Adam, and he was a failure. But if we yield to the new nature, we succeed, for it is the new nature comes from Christ, and he is our victor. In other words, the, through, through the word of God here. Of course, the new nature, we must feed the word of God daily that it might be strong in the light of battle. Just as the Holy Spirit used the word of God to give us spiritual birth, he used the word to give us spiritual strength. Man may not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Of course, it's in Matthew 4, 4, when we talk about Jesus being tempted uh, of the devil there. No matter what excuses we make, we have no one to blame for sin but ourselves. Our own desires lead us to temptation and sin. God is not to blame, but God is erected these three barriers to keep us from sin. If we heed the barriers, we will win a crown. If we break through the barriers, we will find a coffin. Which will it be? In other words, God presents these wonderful blessings to us, uh, but we have to we have to make that choice. Uh, no one else can make it for us. We may have circumstances, but we still end up being our choice. Remember one of the better basketball coaches from years and years ago, and I can't remember who it is. Maybe I'll remember that are basketball gurus. Uh, his motto was no excuses. And when a player didn't do right or do something like he should, uh, you know, it was no excuses. If he did, did what he's supposed to do and it didn't work still, that was fine. But no excuses. Any questions or comments? We'll begin lesson four. If not, we'll get a little bit into it anyway. This is the title of the lesson is Quit, Quit Kidding Yourself.
from James 1, 19 through 27. And we're going to go ahead and read this and then get into the lesson here. Uh, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of God worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Be ye, not, be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass, or some versions say mirror. For he beholds himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whosoever looketh into the law, perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And if any man among you be religious, and bridle not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man religion is vain. Pure religion, and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The book of James, like many of the short epistles, is just, I consider just packed full of every sentence is a powerful statement about the kind of lives we should live. Uh, it was not, going and backtracking a little bit, I don't think uh, John brought this out, but uh, the book of James was not well likened by Martin Luther, the great reformist of many years ago. Uh, of course, Luther was rebelling against the Catholic Church through the selling of indulgences, which was uh, pay now and go ahead and sin later and you're covered. Uh, I guess uh, sin on the installment plan, is that what it was called or something like that? Uh, and when Luther rejected of course, Catholic Church was all about works, 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 and, and nothing else. And uh, Luther really had a problem with the book of James because it talked about works and people that would do that. Of course, it's one of those cases of reacting so far from one direction and going to the extreme in the other. Uh, quit kidding yourself. The emphasis of this section is on the dangers of self-deception, deceiving your own selves, as we read in verse 22, or deceiving your heart, verse 26. If a Christian sins because Satan deceives him, that is one thing. But if he deceives himself, that is far more serious matter. People are deceiving themselves into thinking that they are saved when they are not. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils. In thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23. There are true believers who are fooling themselves concerning their Christian walk. They think they're spiritual when they are not. It is a mark of maturity when a person faces himself honestly, knows himself, and admits his needs. It is the immature person who pretends, I am rich in increasing goods and have need of nothing, Revelation 3, 7. Of course, if we all honestly evaluate ourselves and realize that we will never be perfect, we'll never be complete, but God just expects us to do our best. And I often told my children, I said, I don't want you to be, think you've got to be perfect. 
But if you do your best, that's all we require. That's all God requires of us to do our best and strive to do even better. Spiritual reality results with a proper relationship to God through his word. God's word is truth, John 17, 7. And if we're rightly related to God's truth, we cannot be dishonest or hypocritical. In these verses, James stated that we have three possible responsibilities toward God's word. And we fulfill these responsibilities, we'll have an honest walk with man and God. He first talks about receiving the word. The engrafted word, which means the implanted word. The word that borrowed from the Lord's uh, parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 1 through 9. He compares God's word to seed and the human heart to soil. Of course, in that parable, we remember that the, the word was thrown out there, the word of God, which was the seed. And there were various hearts that received it. The hard heart, heart, which did not understand or receive the word and, and bore no fruit at all. In other words, it was just bouncing off the rock, the hard ground. Had no soil, no substance. And, you know, there are people like that uh, that just do not want to know anything about God. And it bore no fruit. The shallow heart, which was very emotional but had no depth and bore no, uh, no fruit. Uh, this was the one that you know, it had a light subsoil, but the hard rock was under there. Maybe the moisture was out there to start with, and it sprung up, but then as soon as the sun hit it, it withered away. And, it said, you know, these are the people that receive the word of God with thanksgiving. They're all enthusiastic about it, but when trials and tribulations come, they're hitting the road jack. They're taking off there. The crowded heart, which lacked repentance and permitted sin to crowd out the will of God, uh, was also mentioned. You know, this is one that scares me to death. We, we can get so involved with so many things, and, and they're all not bad things, that we push God kind of to the side. And if there's anything I think we all as Christians, and particularly in an audience like this, we need to be aware of is don't let too much of the outside stuff crowd you out and push you away from God. Or, or, or take priority over that. Uh, and the fruitful heart, which received the word and allowed to take root and produced a bountiful harvest, some 30-fold, some 100-fold. This is the soil that has depth to it. This is what we should always strive for, the deeper things, the, 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 the greater things. The final test of salvation is fruit. This means a changed life, a Christian character and conduct, and ministry to others to the glory of God. The fruit might be winning souls to Christ, uh, Romans 1.16. It might be growing in holy living, Romans 6.22. Sharing our material possessions, Romans 15.28. Spiritual character, Galatians 5.20-23. Good works, Colossians 1.10. And even praising the Lord, Hebrews 13.15. Uh, but all the, and of course, we look back in the various letters Paul talks about being church members, we each have different talents and different abilities. We also have different roles. And we should always use these things to God's glory. What I might can do, you might not can do. And what you can do, I might not be able to do. Uh, I personally don't mind teaching adult-level classes, but don't put me in these little bitty kids. I'm just not any good at it. There are other people that can just wrap the kids around the fingers and just go to town with them. Um, so we must remember these things. 
Released works may be manufactured, but they did not have to life in them, nor did they bring glory to God. Real fruit has in it the seed for more fruit, so the harvest continues to grow more fruit, uh, much fruit, John 15, 1 through 5. But the Word of God can not work in our lives unless we receive it in the right way. Jesus did not say, said only take heed what you hear. He also said take heed how you hear. This is in Mark 4.22 and also Luke 8.18. Too many people are on the tragic condition of which alert here and they hear neither do they understand. Matthew 13.3. Remember, of course, Isaiah, I think, spoke about the, and various other prophets said, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, lest I should, you know, they would believe and turn again. Uh, they just would not uh, do those things. They talk about they attend uh, Bible class and church service, but they never give, seem to grow. Is the fault of the teacher or the preacher? Perhaps, it, but it might be the fault of the hearer. It's possibly dull of hearing, Hebrews 5.11, because of the decay of spiritual life. Uh, if the seed of the word is to be planted in our hearts, then we must obey the instruction James gives us. And he, Then he starts illustrating or talking about the various things that he, we must do. He talks first thing about swift to hear. Uh, I, I've had to preach to myself sometimes because I get jumped the gun many times when I when I want to do something and uh, don't listen things out. One of the best managers I ever worked under at the waterworks was a man named Bill Oswald, and Bill had that uncanny ability to let you tell exactly everything that you had a problem with before he would even make a suggestion to you. And looking back, the man had a lot of wisdom in doing what he did. And when he then told you what to do, you really didn't have a problem with it because, well, he heard me out. I gave my arguments for this and arguments for that. He told me to do this. Well, I may not agree it, but he is the boss, and he heard me out. I'm willing to do it. You know, he had that ability to hear uh, who has ears let him hear Matthew nine thirteen nine. so then faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of God Romans ten seventeen. just as the servant is quick to hear his master's voice and the mother to hear a baby's smallest cry so the believer should be quick to hear what God says in other words God has revealed his word his will to us in our word his word we should be here to, to, to listen to it there's a beautiful illustration of this truth in the life of David. Uh, and of course, in 2 Samuel 23, 14 through 7, David was hiding from the Philistines who were in possession of Bethlehem at the time. And he just kind of made the comment, oh, that I could drink of the waters of Bethlehem, his home place. And you know, I think he was kind of saying, just kind of frivolously, kind of reminiscing. But three of his mighty men of valor heard that. Now, uh, if you want to see what tough guys are, go back and read in, in Samuel and in Kings about David's 30-something men of valor. They were some of the toughest dudes that walked the planet. Uh, and three of them said, oh, the king wants to drink water from the well. What do they do? Oh, they just walked down there amongst the listings, whacking them right and left, went to the well, whacking them right and left, drew water out of the well, whacked them right and left, and walked back to David. Guys, 
You know, outnumbered, how many to one? I have no idea. Philistines, you know, were no match for these type of people. Uh, but the three, of, uh, the three of his mighty men said that, and they, they risked their lives to secure the water and bring it to David. They were swift to hear. Of course, David, when he got the water, he says, I won't drink it. These men have risked their lives because of that. I'm going to pour it out as a, as a sacrifice to God. And, of course, this really elevated David in the sight of his men because he gave God the glory for that. But certainly, uh, like I say, every time I think you might be tough, read back about uh, David's men of renown. And, of course, uh, Bathsheba's husband was also one of those men. Slow to speak, verse 19 of James. We have two ears and one mouth that ought to remind us to listen more than we speak. And uh, I know I need to take that advice many times. Too many times we argue with God's word, if not audibly, at least in our hearts. Now, you know, it says slow to speak. That doesn't mean to speak slowly. That just means to weigh our words as far as what we will speak. He that retaineth his lips is wise, Proverbs ten nineteen b part. And he that hath knowledge spareth his words, Proverbs seventeen twenty seven. Uh Instead of being slow to speak, the lawyer in Luke 9, 29 argued with Jesus about, and who is my neighbor? Remember, Christ said the great commandment, love to God and then love your neighbor yourself. And the lawyer said, you know, he wasn't going to turn it loose. He said, well, who is my neighbor? What did Jesus then tell him? The story about the good Samaritan, wasn't it? Who was, who was the good and when you think about it, this was a damning accusation against that lawyer, being a Jew and being a lawyer and a knowledge of the law. You remember the story. It said a man went down from Jericho, Jerusalem, fell among thieves. Here came a Levite by, looked at him, tough crunchies. Here came a priest by. Hmm, might be a Jew, but... I got to go. I got to go do a sacrifice. I'm sure he made up some excuse. He left him, and then last of all came a Samaritan. Now the Jews, they didn't like the Samaritans. Samaritans were half breeds. In fact, Jews hated the Samaritans' guts. Be quite candid about it. If Jews were going from Galilee to Judea. They'd cross the Jordan River, go down the east side, and come back. They wouldn't even walk through Samaria where the Samaritans were. They hated those people. And then Jesus said, the Samaritan, what did he do? He had pity on the man, put him on his own burden, bound him up his wounds, poured in oil, carried him to the inn, and then gave the innkeeper some money, says, if, if you, it takes more than that, take care of him. I, when I come back through, I'll, I'll do it. And Jesus answered the lawyer, who was the neighbor to this person? Boy, don't you know that had to hurt. Don't you know that had to hurt from that lawyer to admit that a Samaritan had been better to him than the highest level of their hierarchy. So certainly, uh, you know, that lawyer was, he should, if he kept his mouth shut, he wouldn't have gotten embarrassed so bad. But he opened it up and Jesus told them a parable that just really you talk about me putting somebody in their place they were put in their place uh, 
He said, in the early church, the services were informed, and often the listeners would debate with the speaker. There was even fightings and wars among the brethren, James was writing in James 4.1. So, you know, being slow to speak as far as exhorting things may be good. And that's a good place to stop right here. We'll talk about slow to wrath next week. I appreciate your attention, and please accept my apologies for not being able to speak any better, but hopefully I'll be well by next week. Thank you.